You're listening to a message from Spindle City Vineyard. Connect with us or find out more at spindlecityvineyard.com. I'm going to kick us back off into the book of Jeremiah. If you weren't here last week and you missed Perla's message, you can find that wherever you find podcasts or on YouTube or Facebook. We are connected all around the way. If I have not had the privilege of meeting you or you're online with us for the first time, my name is Brittany and I'm the lead pastor here. Even though you haven't seen me very much in the last couple of months, Um, I promise I'm still around and I still love all of you and I really love the opportunity to get up and speak and teach. Before we jump into Jeremiah 25 to 45 today, I actually wanted to pray because I felt really specifically a few things. Um, One, I felt like there was a really embattled nature around this morning, meaning I think a couple people really struggled to get here or are really struggling to stay present here this morning. Um, And it's not necessarily something that you've done. It's just that I think that there's just a spirit that's trying to distract and pull from where we're going, um, which is from Jesus. And so I wanted to pray over that this morning and uh, just help us to connect with the goodness of God in this text. Um, So Holy Spirit, you are victorious over all things. And I actually just pray the blood of Jesus over our time together this morning, that any distractions, that any attacks, that any, um, anything that would keep our hearts from connecting with your heart, God, would just be silenced in this time, and we would see you with fresh eyes, and we would see ourselves loved by you through fresh eyes, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you missed Perla's message, I'm so sorry. It was fantastic. You can still go back and get it. I want you to just take 30 seconds as we're adjusting from worship to message to just chat with a neighbor about how you applied her message from last week. If you didn't get a chance to hear it, you could just share your highlight from the week. That's one great thing that happened. So share amongst yourselves and then we'll begin. All right. You guys sound like you're starting to land the plane of talking. So either you don't really like the person next to you which I don't think is true, or you've shared your highlights very quickly, um, or you haven't applied the message, which is a whole different thing. Today, we are going to jump into Jeremiah's 25 to 45. So the book of Jeremiah effectively has three major sections in it. And the way the preaching team has, has done, what we've done is we've just divided those three sections based on content. So if you're thinking, I'm reading through the book of Jeremiah, these are the content delineations. So Jeremiah 1 to 24 is most essentially a compilation of Jeremiah's writings, his warnings, his poems, his his sermons, if you will, that he gives to the people of Judah. And there's a distinct transition that happens in Jeremiah 25 because something changes on the international scene. So what happens is Jeremiah is going through, he's, he's brought together all of his writings, all the different things he said in the first section, and here Jeremiah says, ooh, something's just shifted in the atmosphere. He looks across the international scene and King Nebuchadnezzar has come to power after his father has died over in the nation of Babylon. And he realizes, what Jeremiah senses is that everything he's been warning Judah about is about to happen, and it's about to happen pretty imminently. It's like if you are, you know, you just know like there's a a big change coming, but you don't know when, and then you see that thing that's like, oh, yeah, it's like within hours or days or months. Um, That's exactly what he sees. And it's unfortunate because then he gets this revelation from God that's really heavy and really scary and really intense, and we're going to read it. 
So starting in verses 4, there'll be pieces of it up behind me, but I'm going to be reading Jeremiah 25, 4 to 7 and verse 11. Again and again, the Lord has sent you his servants, the prophets, and you have not listened or even paid attention. Each time the message was this, turn from the evil road you're traveling and from the evil things you're doing. Only then will I let you live in the land that the Lord gave you and your ancestors forever. Do not provoke me to anger by worshiping idols you made by your own hands. Then I will not harm you, but you would not listen to me, says the Lord. And so this entire land will become a desolate wasteland. Israel and her neighboring lands will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. And so basically when Nebuchadnezzar hits the throne, Jeremiah realizes that within a short period of time, it ends up being basically 19 years, Israel, or Judah is about to reap the consequences of their ongoing rejection of God, and it's going to manifest or culminate in a 70-year exile. And that's a 70-year timeout, but it's not the kind of timeout where you like come back and everything's the same after the timeout. This means their home is going to be burned to the ground. They're losing their homes, they're losing their businesses, they're losing the temple, they're losing their national identity and being stripped of their homeland. They're losing their spiritual home and everything that they knew about the presence of God. They're losing the ability to control the way that they live. Everything that they did, and it was a theocratic type of system, which meant God and government were kind of enmeshed for them and they were losing the ability to live the way that they felt called or that they were supposed to be living. This wasn't a small, subtle shift with them being forcibly removed. It was a really dramatic thing that few of us have encountered, though people around the world are encountering this every day as they flee from their homeland because it's not safe. And so this was a catastrophic event that Jeremiah is seeing on the horizon for his people. And remember, he loves his people. Being a prophet wasn't this like, oh good, I get to yell at everyone. He is brokenhearted because he realizes that his people are about to endure extreme pain. And he is part of it. Jeremiah gets kidnapped and tracked off. He doesn't end up going to Babylon. He ends up in Egypt, actually, of all places with a bunch of other rebels which just brings me to Star Wars, but we're not going to go down that rabbit trail today. But he knows that this is going to be a brutal experience, and his heart is torn for them. He doesn't look at this and think, oh, now you're going to get it. I've been talking about this. He's like, oh, no. We missed the window, and it's coming. And the image he has, the picture he has of this intense destruction is like a cup of wrath. He imagines it being like drinking a cup of God's anger, and it's preceded, if you keep going in Jeremiah 25, verses 15 to 17 are the whole cup of wrath image, um, but I'm just going to read the first part where he says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup filled to the brim with my anger, and make all the nations to whom I sent you drink from it. And if you jump all the way to verse 31, it continues, his cry of judgment, God's judgment, will reach the ends of the earth for the Lord will bring his case against all the nations. He will judge the people of the earth, slaughtering the wicked with the sword. I, the Lord, have spoken. And you're like, yay, what a great message, Brittany. We're done. Just kidding. Um, it is a really intense passage. And 
Jeremiah knows that the destruction that's coming is going to be like drinking a cup of God's anger. But the problem with this passage, let me, let me back up and ask a question first, um, is that anger just makes us really uncomfortable. So when was the last time you were angry? And I don't mean like a little ticked off because somebody made you mad, like you were boiling. Three months ago, see, Johan, it, it, usually you remember because you're like, oh, I cannot control myself right now. No one else? Last week? Two weeks ago? Last night? <laughs> I don't have a prize for the most recent. But the reality is, we all get angry. And there are times where we get really, really angry. And it can make us uncomfortable. But the thing is, God gave us our emotions, right? They're not these random things that we just have. God gave us our emotions, they're his emotions. And occasionally, God himself gets very, very angry as well. And it's not comfortable when we encounter anger in other people. None of us like to be on the other side of someone who's angry. I don't think any of us truly like being angry ourselves because it can feel a little out of control. And we certainly struggle when we discover passages like this in the text where God is angry. We're like, ooh, that feels really weird or uncomfortable for me. Um, and we actually can develop, I've heard this, not necessarily in our church dynamic, but I've heard people say things like, ooh, I don't like Old Testament angry God, but I really like New Testament Jesus. Right? Have you ever heard that dynamic where people are like, they're very different people, even though they're the same part of the person, the Trinity and all that stuff? Um, and, and so we, we almost create this like shell or this picture of Old Testament angry God and what he's like is essentially, if you don't do what he wants, he's very quick to destroy you. And the destruction is violent and angry, and the punishment is intense, and you're going to be wiped out and obliterated. And the problem with that dynamic is how many of you have been in an unhealthy relationship before? You don't have to raise your hands. We can probably all just say, yes, that's me. Um, if you feel like you have to walk on eggshells around someone all the time because of an unhealthy relationship, what typically happens? You fall apart. The relationship falls apart. How do you react around someone that you don't feel safe with? You avoid them. You implode. You're not real. You have to hide yourself because you're not safe. Yeah, I don't know what's going on in there, but they're having a good time. They're agreeing with us. We do the same with the Lord. If we have this picture of like Old Testament angry God, even if we have a great picture of Jesus and we're like not even sure about the Holy Spirit, but if a third of the Trinity, we really struggle to see his goodness, his love, his compassion, then we are going to shut ourselves down to him. There's going to be a degree of a wall that we put up because we don't feel safe because we don't ever know when this anger is going to fall. And so it makes it very hard to have a healthy relationship with God as a result of that. And so what I want to do this morning is answer three questions in the next 20 minutes. I'm going to try very hard to do it. Um, but I want us to think about this because this is a very real issue, not just within the church, but with people outside of faith who don't know how to en encounter or understand these texts. So one, why does God even get angry? What really like gets him going? Two, how does he actually express his anger? Is it always like a flood or like a giant wrath ball coming out of the sky? And third, what does his anger mean for us today? 
Because those are all questions that we usually are wondering, but we don't necessarily have a good answer to. And Jeremiah happens to unpack all of them for us, which is very handy. So we're going to bounce to Jeremiah 26 to 29 now to answer the question, why does God get angry? Um, but I'm going to do a lot of Bible jumping this morning because to really answer that question, we need to not just look at these sets of chapters or the chapters that Perilous set us up for last week, but we also need to kind of go back to the beginning of the whole story because the Torah sets us up for understanding this. So if you're new with us, this is the first time you've ever walked into a church dynamic or you're exploring faith. A very quick storyline or synopsis of the Old Testament is basically this. The overarching story of the Bible, starting from the beginning, is that God created humanity to be his family. And quite literally, that meant to be representatives of him to the rest of the world. But we really like to be in control. Like a lot. Like, I want to pick all the colors in my house. Tim doesn't get a say very often. That kind of control. And the problem is, is that when humanity kind of manifests that spirit, they, they actually end up rejecting God. And when they do that and start doing their own things, the result is just corruption and self-destruction. You know, very quickly from the moment at the beginning to like a couple chapters later, they've basically ruined creation with bloodshed and violence and greed and anger and murder, and it's really not a good scene. And so God tries this like holy reset through Noah, where he's like, all right, well, let's just like scratch that and do it again. And maybe it'll be better because Noah's a holy man. So we're going to like start it here. But ultimately that fails too. And humanity begins that downward spiral again. So then God's like, well, let's try it with just Abraham. We'll pick one guy, like all of humanity, you're a hot mess. I'm just going to pick one person who I have a better chance of relating to, to kind of get on track. And so he invites Noah and his descendants, excuse me, Abraham and his descendants, which would be the nation of Israel, to be his new family. But he says, what I will do through you is, is make you a blessing to the rest of the world, which means even though I'm, I'm not working with all of humanity per se, you are going to be the hinge or access point to which they can all become my family again. And I want you to hear this. Abraham and his descendants both consent to the relationship. They are not forced to relate to God. He gives them the choice and they say, yes, we want to be in this relationship with you. And God says, great. As with any healthy relationship, there are good, normal boundaries and expectations. If you are in a healthy relationship with someone, they do not verbally assault you every day, right? If you're in a healthy relationship with someone, they do not physically hurt you. If you're in a good, healthy relationship, there is respect, there is continuity, there is a balance of, of responsibility that's going on there. And so God outlines what that looks like for Israel, human beings, to relate to a holy God in a way that both are essentially mutually edified. And it doesn't take long before they just say no. <laughs> They've got all the things laid out, and they're ready to rock and roll, and like they don't even leave basically the, the side of God's presence before they're making idols and just struggling. And so this, we just watch this pattern emerge. The rest of the Old Testament is just the same pattern happening over and over again, where Israel's like, God, we love you, but we don't really want to do what you want us to do, so we're going to go do our own thing. And God constantly sends reminders over and over and over again, where he's like, listen, this is not what healthy relationship with me looks like. I'm setting a boundary. Can we come back to the healthy place 
or not? And Israel's like, yet yeah, no. Over and over and over and over and over. And so basically, if you get to Jeremiah chapters 26 to 29, the person on the scene is Jeremiah who's having that conversation with Judah. He says, you're not living in healthy relationship with God. You're oppressing widows. You're hurting foreigners. You're abusing orphans. You have neglected the social and economic things that you are responsible to do in a healthy relationship with God. You don't trust him. You're making allegiances with uh, other nations looking for your safety and protection from them instead of God. And the rest of these chapters is quite simply just a, a culmination, if you will, of all of their responses, the political leaders, the religious leaders, the people, and their responses are not good. They get mad at Jeremiah. They try and bring him up on false charges to get him like thrown into prison. They abuse him. They ridicule him. They reject him. They hate him. So the mouthpiece of God, who's supposed to be like, hey, God's getting a little mad because we're not following the rules. He's been telling you this for centuries, not days, guys, not a couple weeks. Centuries of prophets have been coming and telling you this is not how healthy relationship works. He's starting to get to his breaking point with you. I mean, how long do most of us tolerate when someone is not being healthy with us in a relationship? Some of you have lots of patience. Quickly, some of us are like a couple years. It depends on the person, right? If it's somebody that like is in your family, you might have more tolerance than a coworker. Not century. Well, I mean, if I were living that long, I certainly. God's like cancel culture. What's that? He needs to like Google the definition. He's like, I have been giving them so much time. And and the reason being is that God is ridiculously patient. He tells Moses, actually, in, in Exodus 34, 6, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. And he means it. It takes him centuries to get to his breaking point. His anger doesn't just bubble up overnight like, oh, I'm mad at you. You didn't do what I said. It takes centuries for the Lord to say, I have been trying and trying and trying to get you to hear me, and you're not listening. And so eventually, God does get angry. But it's not quick, and it's not, it's not impulsive. It is extremely thought out because he has been rejected for centuries by people. And so what actually makes him mad, what gets God angry, isn't just these one-off, I didn't listen to you, but it's centuries of repeated rejection by his own people after he has also repeatedly tried to have the healthy relationship conversation, right? That's what makes him mad. It's not just these little quick things, but it's, it's over and over and over again. And this dynamic preempts every time we find God angry in the Old Testament. So you can go back and read the flood. You can go back and read about Pharaoh and his hard heart. You can go back and look at any of those things. And you have to realize that there are oftentimes more than centuries worth of abuse that God has just been like, guys, this isn't how this works. And he's tried and tried and tried and humanity has refused to listen. And that's when God gets upset. But then how does he express his anger? I'm going to do something weird and we're going to jump from 29 to 34 and we'll do 34 to 45, and then we'll come back to the midsection. But basically, in these chapters, we see that 
Jeremiah's visions, everything he warned Israel about is, or Judah about has been executed. So in 598 BC, about seven years after Nebuchadnezzar becomes king of Babylon, he comes and he lays siege against Jerusalem and he wins and he takes King Jehoiachin and basically all of the leading religious and political leaders, all the elites, all the business owners. He takes like the upper class, if you will, away with him back to Babylon. And he's like, that'll teach you, you ungrateful peasants. And then, of course, that doesn't teach them. So Judah goes, and under the rule of Zedekiah, they make a treaty with Babylon, like, please don't hurt us anymore, we'll be nice to you. And then in a very short period of time, Zedekiah does something every political person knows is not a good idea, and he breaks the treaty that he had with Babylon and thinks there will be no consequences. The problem is there are very quick and swift consequences because in 586, Nebuchadnezzar comes back and this time he doesn't just lay Jerusalem under siege. He actually destroys the entirety of the city. And more than that, I have to see if I can find it. He is so mad at Zedekiah that he captures him. He kills his children in front of him. And then he pokes out his eyes and puts him in chains and brings him back to Babylon. Like Nebuchadnezzar is the guy that you just really don't want to cross ever. Um, and so we watch as essentially these two horrific sieges and, and points of destruction come until basically everybody is taken out of Jerusalem and brought into Babylon in exile and just a small remnant of basically the impoverished remain. You know, the folks that Babylon's not worried about rebelling because they're cripples or they're, or they're homeless or they, they have no real power. So Babylon's like, you're not probably going to be a problem from us. And so we read that and we're like, well, when God gets angry, he gets really angry. Like, is he gonna, is my house gonna be destroyed? Our natural, our natural disasters, God being mad at me. We start to create all these really strange theological interpretations around angry God. And the, the problem with that is that it's a, it's a drastic misread of what's actually happening whenever stuff like this implodes to God's people. So if we think back to Moses, we referenced him a few times, when Moses is trying to help Israel develop this healthy relationship with God and Israel again and again and again and again is not listening, Moses writes down a phrase that becomes like continuous throughout the Old Testament. He says, God is mad at you. He is going to hide his face from you. And that quite literally means that God is going to remove his, his protective, life-sustaining presence from around you. It means that God is going to take, if God is love and God is life and God is truth and God is righteousness and God is goodness and he's all the wonderful things in the world, for him to remove his presence from around us leaves us with the opposites. Darkness, death, chaos, destruction, pain, violence, all the things that none of us really enjoy or want to talk about. And we act like all of the things that are happening when God says he's angry, all the judgments being pronounced, the flood and Pharaoh and all that stuff, is God acting, but it's actually the complete opposite. It's God no longer acting to protect. It's God quite literally stepping out of the way and saying, if you really don't want me, which is what you've been saying over and over and over again, then I will give you what you want and I will get out of your way and let you live with the logical consequences of your choices. And unfortunately, 100% of the time, it's self-destruction. And God knows that. And so he is a, a protective force trying to hedge us in because he does not want us to be destroyed. 
But if we assert our desire for independence enough, he will step aside and say, you can have what you want, even though I know this is not going to go well. And that is exactly what happens in Babylon. God does not send Babylon. Zedekiah messed up. He made a huge political error trying to trust somebody who wasn't God to be his protection. Zedekiah is the one who set in motion the second major siege and destruction of Babylon. Zedekiah is the one who ultimately works and brings about the entire exile of his people. God had been preventing that from happening and finally got to his breaking point where he says, if you really don't want me, then I will move out of the way. And it comes like a flood. Like it just, it just bowls them over because they're just, their choices have been so self-destructive. But it is not God doing it. It is God moving out of the way so that they can do what they want, even if it means getting knocked over by this enemy and losing everything that they love. And it's so important for us to remember that, that when we read this idea of the cup of wrath, Jeremiah isn't saying, God's going to do all these things to you. He says, this destruction is going to be like that. It's a metaphor. It's not, this is what God does. It's, this is going to be so terrible. It would be like that. But it's not God's fault. It's ours. God is not judging us and condemning us and destroying us. We have signed ourselves up for that by the way that we're behaving. He has been protecting and keeping us safe. He is going to remove himself because we told him we don't want him anymore. And the leftover is awful. And so when we encounter God's anger, we have to remember that it's not actually God being punitive and destroying us. It's God removing himself out of the way so that we handle the logical consequences of what goes on when we do that. And so, whew, all right. That's how God gets angry. That's what his anger is actually like. God is not crushing you and sending horrible things against you and giving you cancer and causing natural disasters. God does not use evil to accomplish his means. Humanity, when God's presence is not there to prevent that evil from getting bigger and bigger, is already pushing down that channel. And so the Lord just says, if that's really what you want, as much as I don't want that for you, I will get out of your way and allow it to happen. So what does that mean for us today? This is a really important middle piece in the chapters uh, 30 to 33, and this is my longest chunk, and we're doing it. You guys are great. Um, so, so does God still do this? Is, this? is this his character? Is this his nature? Is this how he operates in relationship to us? And this is where it gets like, if you thought I was excited to be back up here, it's going to get even better, I promise. Um, we have a little bit of Bible jumping, like I said, before us. But we find buried in chapters 30 to 33, which are a compilation of hope messages. So if you're reading that for content purposes, it's Jeremiah telling the exiles, don't worry. Exile isn't the end of the story. Just because God hides his face from you does not mean he stops loving you. In fact, it couldn't be further from the truth. You may have rejected him. He will never stop loving you. And so in chapter 31, verses 31 to 33, he gives this pronouncement. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant, this promise, this agreement, this relationship will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant. Though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. This covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. 
I will put my instructions, my way of relating in a healthy way, deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. The basic claim for the Torah, everything, the Old Testament, the Torah, the, you know, if you're reading that first five major sections of the, of the Old Testament, is that humanity is innately resistant to God. We're not interested in a relationship. We love self-control or our attempt at self-control far too much to want to surrender and trust God. And God likens this heart attitude of like wanting control all the time to having a heart of stone. He tells us that in Ezekiel 36, 26. And basically what he says is external rules will never change that heart posture. Religion, the law, the temple, me living among you in that temple place is not enough to make you actually trust and surrender to me. It's not enough for you to actually believe that I love you and let me love you. What humanity needs at the root of all of it is actually a heart transplant. It says what you really need if you want to be loved by me so that I can love you and you can love me is for that, that desire for control for you to be able to surrender that, for you to be able to let that go. And that brings us all the way up to Jesus, <laughs> which is the best part of the story. But I want to look at Jesus just a little different than we normally do. Because Jesus functions as a prophet to the people of Israel. We don't often think of him that way, but he actually says very similar things to Jeremiah and Ezekiel. In fact, he comes and in between all of his good news and healings are a lot of warnings. And unfortunately, the Western church has typically read all of the warnings of Jesus and been like, that is ascribed to this vague place called hell that we all have very different opinions and beliefs about, and I'm not sure any of them are right. Because when he's talking about all of, these, all of these warnings, a flood, a descent to the grave, an impending fire, a storm, all of that, what he's always referring to is national disasters that are going to come like what happened with Babylon. It's the same continuous reference point that we also find in Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Micah, Amos, all of them who are saying, you've rejected God for so long. If you don't repent and follow God, which is what Jesus says, if you don't repent and follow me, disaster is coming. And that's exactly what Jesus says. So in Luke 13, verses 1 to 5, um, I'm going to just paraphrase it, but some people come to tell him that a bunch of Galileans have been murdered at the temple, and it's been really gross and bloody and terrible. And Jesus responds, why did they suffer? Is that why they suffered? Not at all. You will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No, I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. And what Jesus is doing when he talks about the grave, when he talks about the storm, when he talks about all of these disasters coming if people don't repent and follow him, is he's reiterating the words of the Old Testament prophets who said, if you don't turn back to God, he's going to hide his presence from you and it's not going to go well. So these aren't individualistic warnings as much as they're national warnings specifically to the people of Israel and not so much to us. And so what happens is Jesus realizes that even though God has put these words in his mouth, just like all the prophets that came before him, Israel's not going to listen. But unfortunately, 
the people who are going to bring their destruction this time, it's not Babylon, it's Rome. They're already being oppressed by Rome. And he says, if, you, if, I, if God removes his protective presence from you, they're already at the gate. Guys, they already live in the city. They're here and they're going to destroy you. And ultimately, Jerusalem does get destroyed again. And so what happens is Jesus recognizes that this is what's going to happen. And so what he does helps us, if we, if we understand that mindset of Jesus's warnings and what's happening in the New Testament, it helps us understand the cups that happen around like Passover or when we celebrate the Lord's table or communion so much more. So we have this cup of wrath that we talk about with Jeremiah. So let's, let's come forward to Jesus. So the night before he's murdered, it's Passover. He's getting together with all his friends. They're celebrating the time when God freed Israel from their Egyptian uh, oppressors, when they've, when they've really quite literally been set free from slavery. And he does this weird thing. And it was weird to them, and it, it should be a little weird to us. He picks up a cup of wine after they've had dinner, and he's like, uh, he looks at it, he gives thanks to God, and he says, each of you drink this. And they're like, okay. And then he goes, for it is my blood. Listen, if somebody invites me to your house for dinner and you're like, drink this cup of wine, it's my blood. I am out your door. I'm, not, I'm like grabbing my kids without their shoes on and we're leaving. It's a weird statement to make to them. We have to recognize that it was strange, but they're like, we'll do it. We love you. We're going to follow you. And he, and he says, this confirms, this cup of wine confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. And what Jesus is doing is he's introducing a new cup, okay? A new cup that has to do with a new promise. And he says, that promise is made in my blood. He's, a, he's assigning himself the same thing as the animal sacrifices and the covenants that were made in the Old Testament. He's like, I am doing the same thing for you as was done in the Old Testament when the animals were used to confirm a covenant with God. And then, first cup, weird blood cup, okay? Second cup, he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane after dinner, and he knows that he is about to be arrested and put on trial and murdered uh, by the state. <clears throat> and what he does when he's in there is he prays to God, and they record three prayers. And in them, he specifically asks God three times for the cup to be taken from him. And this cup is the other cup. So if the first cup is the new covenant, the second cup in the garden is referencing the Old Testament cup of God's wrath, which is when God hides his face from his people, okay? The first cup is the new covenant, new relationship. The second is the, based on the old covenant, where if you do not obey me, I will remove my presence from among you. So there are two cups. And what we have is basically Jesus taking the second cup, which is in the garden, which is when God removes his presence from his people and drinking that cup on the cross and giving us a new cup, a new promise, so that we, as his redeemed people today, will never have to experience separation from God ever again for anything we ever do. We, every little mistake, every little sin, every big mistake, every big sin. He says, I have permanently drank the cup of separation from God so that you don't have to. 
so that your sins are always forgiven. The ones that were, the ones that are, the ones that will be. You do not have to bear the weight of separation from God because I will do it, and he does on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that was the one time in all of eternity where the father and the son were physically split from each other and they were not in relationship. Because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. Jesus had his, God hid his face from Jesus so that we would never have to endure that ever again. He took all of that on himself. All of that. Because he wanted us to avoid the reality of ever being separated from the father. Why? Because the Father loves us and he does not enjoy getting angry with us. You do not serve, you are not created by, you are not loved by a Father who enjoys getting mad with you because you struggle to follow him. He says, you have a heart of stone inside of you, you can't fix it, so I'll do it. I will do everything in my power to keep my family together including let myself be murdered by the state because Jesus understood that it was greater than just Rome. He said, what's motivating Rome are the powers of sin and darkness. He knew that Caiaphas, he knew that Pilate, he knew all of them were being motivated by an external force that the enemy is really functioning and operating to keep us apart from God's loving heart for us. And he says, I will handle that because you can't. I will take that on because you can't. Only I can go into death and come out on the other side. If you die, if I die, we just die. If Jesus dies, he has the power to have victory over that death. And so that is an exchange of the cups. And that tells us what it means for God's anger for us today. Jesus has removed the cup that says we can be separated from the Lord and has permanently taken that upon himself and dealt with it. And we're told that with the new cup, the new covenant made in his blood that we are made a new creation in 2 Corinthians 5.17. And that new creation means that we have a heart of flesh put back in our body, which means we can receive God's love, we can receive his goodness, and we can love him back. We can learn to follow him back. We can learn to be in community and connection with him and have a good, healthy relationship the way that Israel never could or the rest of humanity never could. And we know that this is an unbreakable covenant because God says, not only will I never hide my face from you, but where am I going to live now? In you. Not only am I not going to hide my face from you, I'm going to take up residence in you so that I'm like not ever going anywhere. You are my preferred dwelling place. I enjoy you so much. Like, have you ever realized that God created you when he made you and he was like forming you? He's like, I cannot wait to live inside this one. Like, he enjoys that. How often do you put guilt and shame on yourself because you think, oh, I messed up and God hates me? And he's like, I love living here. I designed this. I put this together on purpose because you are mine and I love you. I dealt with all the anger stuff through Jesus. I dealt with all of it. It's an exchange of cups that facilitates an exchange of hearts where we, Jesus takes that and he's like, I'll, let me have all the hard-hearted control freak stuff here. You can actually trust and love and surrender to God. What would it mean if you truly believed that God was for you? What would it do for your relationship with him if you truly believe that God and Jesus dealt with all of sin and all of the anger and judgment that comes with it so that you can live in a freedom with him? 
I have people like, I'm seeing it on your faces. You're like, oh my gosh, God likes me. God's not angry at you this morning. He's not. There's nothing you've ever done or will do that is going to make him angry with you because Jesus took that on the cross. That doesn't mean that we don't still make poor decisions, but they're not God's fault. And sometimes we do deal with the consequences of that because if I run into someone on the street, I just made a big mistake. But God does not look down from heaven and say, all right, let's take their house down in a fire. That is not how the father operates. Oh, you weren't a very nice person as a kid. I'm going to give you cancer. That is not biblically accurate. That is bad theology and it needs to stop. We cannot be people who support that because God is not angry at us. Jesus took all of that hiding of his face so that we can look the Lord face to face. Not that any of us would because I think we'd be so amazed that we'd be like, you're incredible, but like I can't stand in your presence. So let's land the plane. This is why God gets angry is when people reject him over and over again. His anger means removing his presence from us. Jesus took all of that, so that has been dealt with. We get to drink of the cup of the new covenant if we choose. It is still a choice that we have to make. God still asks for consent in our relationship. But when we do that, we get a heart of flesh, and we no longer live under any separation from God, but intimacy, connection, relationship, health, and love. It is the kindness of God that brings us to repentance, right? It is his goodness and his love that draws us into his heart, and we, we are changed there. And so when we think of fear of the Lord, I do not want you to think that you are ready to be an ant smushed under his finger, because that is not a good interpretation of the Bible either. Fear means prioritizing God first and giving him holy honor, holy reverence, holy respect. We realize, God, you are... Your ways are not my ways, and you are far greater than I am, but you love me, and that is incredible, and so I give you all of my life. Fear should lead us to surrender in a healthy way, where we trust God because he is good, and we know he is perfectly good, so we can trust him all of the time, even if we don't understand what's happening around us, and that is the invitation I feel like he's making this morning. I want to give you 60 seconds to just ingest. That's not very much time. But if you would like to think about, okay, God, what are you calling me to do with this message? How am I supposed to respond? And then we'll, we'll do ministry time, which is just our collective response at the end. When have you stand? It's okay if you didn't have an immediate answer. It's on the bottom of your bulletins. Every week we leave you with reflection questions. You can reflect on that more around the dinner table or in your quiet time. But we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to come, and I'm just going to wait on him and see what he wants to do this morning. I'm sure there are words and leanings and things, but we're just going to let him have the floor and just take over. So Holy Spirit, we, <laughs> oh, we love you. Holy Spirit, come. <laughs>